So sometimes anxiety comes to visit. And guess what? Sometimes I'm not going to answer the door. I'm not. <laughs> I not right love now. it. Not right now, I'm not going to answer the door. Tomorrow, I'll probably answer the door. Mm. But right now, I'm not going to. I choose not to answer the door that anxiety is knocking on. I say it all the time, Doc. Because your phone rings doesn't mean you must answer it. It just is telling you that someone on the other end would like to talk to you. Welcome to Love and Life. I'm Dr. Karen Anderson Abril here with my co host, Pastor Elliot Anderson. And Love & Life is your place to hear conversations grounded in psych research, psychotherapy, and biblical truth to help us thrive in love and life. Do you ever ask yourself, how am I doing? Some of us are in our heads a lot and very much in touch with our feelings, but sometimes even those of us who feel pretty introspective and believe ourselves to be pretty intuitive with what's going on with us, sometimes in today's fast-paced world with this opportunity to distract ourselves all the time on social media, to scroll instead of sit with our emotions, sometimes we don't ask ourselves the question, how am I doing? Dr. Corey Yeager is the author of a book called How Am I Doing? 40 Conversations to Have with Yourself. He asks us and invites us to consider 40 important questions that will give us an opportunity to check in with ourselves and by doing so, have a better sense of who we are, what we're about, what choices we want to make, what values we want to ascribe to and adhere to. And it gives us a chance to make an impact on our communities in whatever realm we are meant to have an influence. Dr. Yeager is here with me today, but first, let's hear a little bit more about him and his work. Best known for his appearance on Prince Harry and Oprah's The Me You Can't See on Apple TV+, Dr. Corey Yeager is a licensed marriage and family therapist at the doctoral level, focusing primarily on serving the African-American community. His research emphasis centers on better understanding the plight of African-American relationships. In his current role as the psychotherapist for the Detroit Pistons, Dr. Yeager is merging his two passions, athletics and therapy. He currently resides in Minneapolis, Minnesota with his wife, Carrie, and four sons, Isaiah, Zach, Azri, and Terrence. My interview with Dr. Yeager, author of How Am I Doing? Right after this. If you're interested in processing further as you align your mind, body, and spirit, we're here for you. Head over to loveandlifemedia.com and click on the Work With Us tab. There you can book individual or couples sessions. Or sign up for one of our support groups. Purchase one session or a multiple session package. We'd love to work with you. Sign up at loveandlifemedia.com. Dr. Yeager, welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Dr. K. I appreciate joining you today. I look forward to the conversation. I do as well. I want to talk about your book, How Am I Doing? 40 Conversations to Have with Yourself. I love what your work is about. And it's a short, very accessible book mm-hmm. in that it's not one of these tomes that can feel a little daunting when you're like, okay, there's good self-help in there, but woo, it's a big one. This yeah. is a nice, accessible book, but so pithy and full of wisdom from your own story. You share a lot of your own journey and then also your professional development, what you've learned along the way. So thank you for putting this out into the world and thank you for joining me today. No, I appreciate that. I think when we sat down to unfold this and write this first book, 
I really wanted it to be just, as you said, accessible. I wanted anyone to be able to pick it up and be able to work and have it be a malleable process that they could work with the book and themselves to journey towards discovery of who exactly it is that we are. So I'm glad that it seemed that way when you read it or engaged with it, because that's exactly what we wanted. Yeah, and the engagement piece, it's a through line. What I love about that is, and you and I, are we can get in our heads with, we like theory and we like, I have a background in therapy as well, so we like to talk about the theory behind all the things. But oftentimes people will approach a book like yours from a place of pain and confusion. Mm -hmm. Throughout every chapter, you have an exercise, something to really concretize the theme of the chapter and give them a practical application. Yeah. And I think that's extremely important as we began the endeavor to write the book. One thing that I wanted to do was say, all right, so I'm going to talk about some things. I'm going to talk about them in a simplistic way. But even when you talk about them in a simplistic way, I think that the exercises more deeply seed the understanding, more deeply help you understand exactly what it is that you've just chewed through and try to digest. So that was really the hope in the process of writing in a simplistic way and putting those exercises that follow each chapter in a way that kind of helps seed that in a deep way. So often there's that tension between a big theoretical notion that has a strong, very practical application, and sometimes trying to tie those two together can be difficult, but your book does just that. If it's okay with you, Dr. Yeager, I would love to go through, I have highlights and some Mm -hmm. bookmarks here, and just hit some of the topics and the themes and even some of your quotes that really touched me. Yeah, perfect. Great. Again, how am I doing? 40 conversations to have with yourself. And I was struck in chapter three, you asked the question, who knows you best? And you say, when big questions and decisions arise, you probably already have the answers. Mm -hmm. Help us understand that when someone's going, no, I I don't, I'm confused. (laughs) So what I tell people all the time, simplistic, simply, when you have a big thing that's in your life and you're saying, all right, so what do I want to do? If you slow down, and silence yourself, steady yourself, still yourself, that internal dialogue, that deep voice within will guide you. But all too often we have learned to shut that voice off, to not pay deep attention to that voice. That inner dialogue is the voice of almost our soul, our inner being. And that voice is here to protect us. Because all too often you you remember saying in situations that you may not have made a great choice, I knew better. Mm. I knew I told myself not to do that. (laughs) Whatever that voice was that was saying, don't do this. Maybe we should do this. That is the voice of stillness that we need to engage with. So when I say deep down, we know, I believe that we really do. I write in the book that I have come to learn and trust that the world will unfold for me in a way that's going to be beneficial for me and mine. I believe that deeply. I believe that every day, every week, month, year, all my decisions will unfold in a way that's beneficial for us. I trust that. And I, I deeply trust that intuitive voice that guides me. I think most people know that that intuitive voice is there, but they haven't come to deeply trust it. I won't keep going on, Doc, but one thing that I would add to that is my grandmother, I write about in the book, Granny, she taught me at about the age 10 
she called me over and said, hey, come here, I see something in you. You have a really good and beautiful gift. It's called the gift of discernment. Practice it. Listen to that internal voice. She told me this at 10, and I began to use it. Listen to that internal voice. See if Watch and listen to what it's telling you. See if it's right, and it's usually going to be right. And then you'll come to trust it the more you use it. I think we don't trust it because we don't use it. So I could go on and on, but I'll leave it, I'll leave it there. We'll continue to weave this theme because it, it is one of the through lines of the book entirely. And it's funny you mentioned your granny because that is one of the highlights I have. I was really struck by her speaking that word into you at such a tender age and you seeing her and going, granny has this to whatever degree you could understand that at 10 and feeling that validation of she saw you, she Mm -hmm. spoke into you. And I also want to say, because you do share very vulnerably about the passing of your father young. Mm -hmm. And so for you to have that confidence, even in the midst of a very tragic and painful loss for a young man at a very tender age, to know that still you could trust that inner voice. Still you could believe that life will unfold for you. I'm struck by how you're saying that. Yeah, I think that trusting of the inner voice, I don't know that I necessarily understood where that journey was going to take me, but I always knew, all right, I'm going to trust. I'm going to listen to this voice. Granny talked to me about it. It makes sense to me. It's worked for her. I'm going to use it. And then really what I, this idea, my grandmother called it, what I see it as is discernment. And really discernment is just paying attention at a really ultra high level Mm. and then trying to, in your mind, predict, all right, so if I'm paying attention, what will happen next? So she used to tell me, pay attention, what's going on around you and try to predict what's going to happen, but don't tell anyone. You don't Mm. need to tell anyone you're doing it. Just watch. Watch people, watch situations, and try to predict what's going to happen. And it may take six months for you to see if that's right or wrong. Pay attention, observe, see if it's right. And I used to say, man, it just happens all the time that I was right again, Mm. and I was right. So then that trust is multiplied over time. So early on, I don't know, Doc, that I was really deeply trusting of it, but over all these years... And my wife tells me all the time, she said, when I met you 25 years ago, I don't know that I really deeply trusted your intuition. Mm. But now that I've watched it over time and time again, and you saying things like, hey, so I bet this will happen. I'm thinking this is what will happen if we do this. And it happens so often that now she has said, I trust you. I trust whatever it is in the direction that we want to go. That doesn't mean I'm right all the time, but I do trust that intuition. It's part of the whole theme of the book of learning to trust yourself, learning to understand yourself, know yourself. And in doing so, you're able to really thrive and flourish in all your giftedness, how you are wired and who you're meant to be. The next highlight that I really focused on was in the next chapter, who was the author of your story? And it really is a nice segue from what we just spoke about, is that you say too often we allow others to write ours. Yeah. So, I mean, Think about that line. Too often we allow others to write our story. My story is mine. And I believe deeply that we all have, everyone has a story. The key to that concept is make sure that you're the author of yours. If I allow someone else to write my story, 
I'm really following what they see in me and what they think I should be and do. And that is inauthentic, right? I want the authentic ideas and voice of myself. And I want to guide my own story in a way that I see fitting. People saw me as I grew up. I'm today 6'3", 3'10". So I'm a big dude. Always have been a really big guy. But people always saw the brawn in me, the size in me, and marveled at, oh, my God, he's so huge. Oh, my God, he's so strong. So all I heard was how big and strong I was. And I believed, oh, that means I must be, I'm on a journey towards being a pro football player. High school, All-American, college, all-conference, All-American, all of those things. Then I got to the pros and it didn't work. All of a sudden it was done. So the story that others had told me about myself and that I believed and read into didn't end up being ultimately what it, what I thought. But no one had told me, Doc, this kid's a bright, sharp dude. Hey, he's got some psychological, sociological chops about him, the way he engages with others. He's probably going to be really big in the family therapy, the therapeutic field. No one was saying anything about that. So I didn't believe that I had a really deep way of thinking. I didn't believe that in myself. And it took me time. I didn't get my BA until I was 35 years of age. 35. I'm 53 now. So I just finished the BA and then fell into the master's and then got the PhD at 48 years old. I didn't really have that deep understanding and belief in self until later in life. And I like to say I was a late bloomer. I believed in myself, but I think that story about my brawn was the belief that I had in myself. Thought I was a good guy, decent person, but not a thinker. Yeah. And it's, again, what had been spoken over you. And in this case, you had another story that was being told to you and you enjoyed football. So you're like, all right, that works. But unfortunately, it was limiting because that's that's great that you could pursue your athleticism to its fullest potential. That's great. But because that was the main focus of the story that people were telling you, you didn't have the opportunity to cultivate this other very massive part of you, which is your brain and your academic pursuits and all that, in a sense, ended up being late blooming. They were there all along. Just the voice of that part of your story wasn't being spoken into. It was latent. It was there. To your point, it was laying dormant. And and, and I, I talk a lot. I have four sons, all black boys that I talk to about the importance of society oftentimes at a subconscious level may talk to us or see us not as thinkers Mm. when we have this pigmentation. It may, the first thing, if you see me walking down the street with big hoop earrings in and wearing the fashion of an NBA player, the first thing you're not, you're going to think is not, I bet he's a doctor, I bet he's a PhD. Mm. You're going to put me in a category, whatever it is. So always trying to remind ourselves that it doesn't matter so very deeply what others see us as. It's important. I'm not saying that it's not at all. But what we think of ourselves is much more important than what anyone else, all the people in the world combined, whatever they think of me is not as strong as what I think of me. Absolutely. And again, a tool like your book can really help someone sift through what messaging am I internalizing that's not mine. It's from out there. I don't have to adhere to that. I don't have to align with it. But again, unless we're asking ourselves these questions like you laid out in your work, 
people don't have the opportunity. They're distracted. You know, like we talked about a moment ago, listening to that inner voice. Sometimes we don't give ourselves even 10 minutes of drive time in the car without Mm -hmm. listening to something. Certainly if we're waiting to go to an appointment or something, we're going to pull out our phone and scroll. So we are so distracted that we are denying ourselves the opportunity to ask ourselves these questions, to sit with that still small voice and really identify what is my story and what is being put upon me. To your point, you talk about those moments in the car, that 10 minutes in the car or waiting for appointments and you have 10 minutes before they're going to call you back and you're in the waiting room. What we'll do is we'll automatically, we've been taught, especially over the last 10 to 15 years, uh, grab your phone, scroll. That's what you'll do. If you get bored for five minutes, you have five minutes to waste. What's the first thing 90% of people are going to do? They're going to grab their phone and they're going to scroll. They're going to go to social media and they're going to scroll. One of the things I write in the book is, uh, it's a chapter called, What Can You Do in 23 Seconds? is connected to, I was watching our players that I was working with in the NBA, and between the time that they got fouled and they shot their free throws is about 23 seconds elapses. I used to, I was asking them, so what do you do in that 23 seconds? And they all said nothing. So we began to say, hey, do you think that your chances of making a free throw increase if you would slow your heart rate down, if you're intentional about settling yourself? And we found that they would have an increase in free throw percentage if they started to work on it. I see that in terms of what we do in the car for that 10 minutes or what we do in that waiting room for five minutes, that instead of scrolling through social media, why don't we get in tune with who we are? Why don't we say, okay, so let me take some deep breaths here and see how that makes me feel. Why don't I go through the last couple of days and that conversation I had with that person, see exactly what it is that I may want to work on or want to be curious about why won't we, and that doesn't mean you have to turn social media off or not ever engage with it. It just means take advantage of some of those moments to talk to yourself in a positive way. And I think we can all do that if we'll dedicate to it. We'd love to connect with you further via our weekly newsletter. Joining the Love and Life family gets you first access to bonus content and flash sale pricing for books and consultations. And when you sign up, you'll receive Karen's Empowered Dating Playbook or my Empowered Marriage Playbook. Head over to loveandlifemedia.com to join the Love and Life family. That leads me right to the next chapter I want to address, which is chapter five. Do you have an encouraging inner voice? And I know you mentioned early on in the introduction that you practice narrative solution focused therapy, although this inner voice stuff is very CBT. So yeah, it is. <laughs> And I love my CBT, so I wanted to speak to this because exactly to your point, if we are distracted, scrolling all the time, we may not even have any idea what kind of voice we have. We may not even know what kind of self-talk, running around in our head all day, every day, saying these words to ourselves, not paying attention to them. And then to your point, going, wait, is this negative self-talk? Is this disparaging? Is this bringing me down? Do I need to be my own best friend, so to speak, and speak to myself with the kind of encouragement, empowerment that I speak to others that I love? Yeah, I think to your point, so we're going to get to play in this therapeutic realm for a moment. <laughs> one, of the, one of the things, we talk about CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, and this inner voice, and there's some deep roots there. I utilize that inner voice concept and the conceptualization from that internal family systems world, Mm -hmm. saying that we have almost a family of people within us 
Do we know who the core of the individual is? Do we know who the core of Corey is? Do we know who the core of Dr. Karen is? And do we get to choose when versions of that self can really show up? So when does the version of Corey's, the dad version of me show up? I get to choose when the dad version shows up and when the therapist version shows up, but I can't really choose it if I'm not in tune with my, all of those pieces and who I am. And I submit that the way we, in which we can do that is to understand what that voice is inside of us, to get in touch with that inner voice, that inner dialogue. And I think that's really important. Right, because that inner monologue is reflecting those core beliefs about who we are. Mm. To get to that deeper level, we can start with that self-talk, and then we got to go, where's this coming from? Mm. Do I really believe these things about myself? And if so, what happened that I fundamentally don't believe I'm worthy of love, or I fundamentally don't believe that I'm capable of achieving my hopes and dreams? So yeah, it is it's a piece of a deeper exploration that gets to root causes. And I think that piece of, do I really believe in these things? I don't think we've ever taken the time to be still and ask those questions of ourselves. I think it's, again, I write in the book about value systems. If you think about the value systems that you have, oftentimes you are handed those values when you're very young, 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, you're handed a set of value systems from your family and the community from which you come. And then you go about life and you move on, you're 18 and 25 and getting married and well, all those things happen. And you look around and you can be 50 saying, I've never checked in with if those value systems still apply for me. Mm. I'm just living by the values that I was handed 40 years ago. So yeah. even being curious with yourself, with ourselves saying, all right, so what are those value systems? Do I even know where I got those? And do they still work for me? Are they applicable for me today? Like they were when I got them? See, and I think that allows us moving away. But I think it can produce a type of cognitive dissonance because you can have new information that you've acquired over all those years from the time that you got that value system that can conflict and contradict with what that value system was telling you. So then all of a sudden you get this dissonance like, I have information that tells me that's not necessarily the case for me anymore, but I don't want mom and dad and grandma to be disappointed. I have a loyalty to my family. So at least now it's conscious. And I think that's really important. And just to that point, Dr. Yeager, there is in question 26, who are the real models in your life? You say, Mm -hmm. don't become someone your family won't recognize. Mm-hmm. And I love that. But you're also speaking to at some point, yes. as you grow and develop, there may be values that you acquire that aren't in lockstep with your family of origin. So speak to that a bit. 100%. So I believe the core of who I am is the same young man that my grandmother talked to at 10 years old. At 53, the core of and the essence of me, exactly the same. It has grown and the experiences have impacted it, but it is that core is the same. So they would recognize all the way through who I am. I went off and got a PhD at the University of Minnesota, but I always reminded myself, don't become something that your grandparents wouldn't recognize. So don't speak in a way that granny and papa would say, what happened to my baby? Who, what happened to him? He went off and got these degrees and he didn't even sound like the kid that we know. Yeah, I'm not going to become something different. I'm going to stay true to who it is that I know myself to be and who 
those around me have known me to be. That doesn't mean there won't be some changes and shifts in my belief systems and how I see the world. So I think that those are not mutually exclusive of one another. So understanding that there can be a distinct line between who it is I am that others know me to be and who I love to be and some of the shifts and changes that I have invited into my world after being curious with myself, I think that both of those worlds can coexist and they can't really coexist unless we are curious and engaged with self. You talked about values, which brings me to one part of the book that I loved. Your mom was on it because you were trying to, (laughs) you were trying to, (laughs) our mother's always on it. (laughs) You went to Long Beach for university and after a brief amount of time, you told your mom, "Uh uh-uh, I don't think this is the right place for me. I want to come home and I'm going to quote your mother because she nailed it. She says, you chose it. No one forced you. It's time to step up and figure out how to make that choice the right one. Mm -hmm. And you say, my problem wasn't about making the right choice. The harder work was making the choice that Mm -hmm. really struck me. So when I was in Long Beach, it got rough. And I had come from a background and a culture that was very comfortable. I'd been there for 18 years, predominantly white community with a very tight-knit African-American group of families that were really closely knitted together. And then all of a sudden, I was uprooted from that, and football drew me out to Los Angeles. So I go from a rural community of 5,000 and hauling hay and working on a pig, my uncle's pig farm to all of a sudden, I'm in Long Beach, California, with all these different cultures and fast pace. That was a, it was a change. So I'd been there only a couple of weeks, two or three weeks. And I thought, I don't know if this is for me. I can't do this. So I had tons, I had 30 plus division one football offers, full scholarships across the country. So Kansas and Kansas state, which is my home, Kansas had offered me full scholarships. So I called my mom and said, I think, I don't think this is the best fit. Can you call Coach Mason at the University of Kansas and see if that scholarship is still available? And to be honest, if my mom would have said yes, Coach Mason would have jumped all over taking me because he wanted me to come there. He would have said, yep, we'll figure it out. Yep, come on. If if he wants to drop all his classes there, get him back here. We'll bring him up to the University of Kansas. We'd love to have him. But my mom gave me the most important and profound that I think I'd ever had, and it was simply, that was your choice. Now, go make it right. And from that moment on, I really came to understand we don't need to get so caught up in making the right choice and be paralyzed by it. Make the choice and then go about making it right every day, outworking the competition, being passionate about whatever it is that we're choosing, and that will make the choice the right one. Um, And I think that's just simply the way in which I move in the world and that I see the world. And that's why I wanted to share it in the book so others may be able to get a version of that understanding and say, maybe that can be helpful for me. I don't need to be paralyzed by the anxiety of choice making, right? We'll be paralyzed by all the choices and I can't make the wrong choice. Oh my God, I got to make the right choice. I'm not arguing that we shouldn't be considerate in our choices. We should be. But once we do that, we don't need to look back Oh man, did I, oh my God, what if I would have done this and overthink? We need to just go to work every day and that choice will become the right one. 
Yeah, because I think about when I was in my younger years and I would be paralyzed oftentimes. And certainly in a world like ours, there's so many choices available to so many of us. And we can get that paralyzation that you speak of where we just were frozen in fear of if I make this choice, it's going to affect the rest of my life. And if I make the wrong one, it will ruin the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. And it also speaks to the value that your mom was communicating to you, which was tenacity and not Mm -hmm. quitting. And you made a commitment to this football program. So And I don't know how long she would say, maybe some parents might say at least a year, you got to commit to it because you made that commitment and honoring your commitment. And those are all kinds of values that when we think about this globally, we could say, but also you got to be true to yourself. And if you recognize you made a choice in this direction, then realize it's out of step, out of alignment with who you really are. Maybe it's the right choice to bounce. But at the same time, there's that value of, but do I know within the first three weeks whether this is the right choice? You were really reacting from an emotional place of I'm uncomfortable now. I don't know if I belong here. And the other thing I love, because especially during that age of our development, when we're individuating from our family, going off to college, your mom communicated to you in that moment, make it the right choice. And I believe you can do it. That's right. So one of the the things that, that we're touching on here, Doc, is the importance of understanding, especially in adolescence. All right. Our culture is one of the only cultures in the world, this westernized American culture, that has such a thing as adolescence. We allow our kids to be in that in-between world for yep. many years, almost 13 to 20-some, that we can float in between. Most cultures, 12, 13, 14 years old, rite of passage, man, woman, boom, you're moving. You're part of the community. Let's go forward. So I think understanding the importance of how the adolescent mind works and knowing that the portion of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, the mediating aspect of the brain, the long-term consequence portion of the brain as we now understand it, is not fully developed till about 26 years of age. Mm. So what I was doing at 19 was calling my mom saying, this prefrontal cortex will not allow me to see that I should be still and work for what's coming down the line. So what she did was act as my prefrontal cortex and say, slow down, be still, you're going to be okay. I know it's a lot, but don't worry about it. You're going to stick it out. And I heard her say that in so many words. She was part of what I was developing and understanding as my Supreme Court. She was saying to me, I got you, and I'm not going to allow you to be frantic. I'm not going to do it. We're not going to do that. We're going to be still here, and you're going to go to work, and it's going to work out. So even hearing my mom say that, and I think in part, I was also hearing my mom say, and I'm not allowing you to just uproot and come. I'm not calling coach. No, I'm not doing that. You're going to work it out. And within a number of weeks, I knew this place is pretty good. I think this is for me. Within a number of weeks from that phone call, within two or three weeks, I knew. Yeah, I think this is. And then by the time I went home that summer, I was in love with Long Beach and couldn't wait to get back. (laughs) So it works for us over time. It does. I love that model. I've never thought of it that way. I was aware of the brain research that's showing us that our brains are not fully matured until much longer. And whether that is part and parcel of this extended adolescence. So my doctorate's in developmental psychology. So I'm familiar with the work of Dr. Jeffrey Jensen Arnett. Mm -hmm. And he talks about this emerging adulthood to where, like to your point, in the day at 18, you're an adult. And yet in our culture, because of this prolonged adolescence, we are having an additional life stage, according to Dr. Arnett. He says, 
actually emerging adulthood doesn't end until the end of our 20s because yeah. we're taking longer to mature and grow up. And now we've got the research coming out saying, yeah, your brain's not fully formed anyway. But I love this model that you just, and I never thought of it about it this way, that the parent then acts as the executive functioning of the adolescent okay. brain because the adolescent brain is literally and biologically incapable of doing so. So that was good parenting for her to be like, I'm going to have to be yes. your frontal lobe right now. <laughs> yes. And Dr. K, that's what I, when I'm working with families, even with my MBA players, because they're my MBA players are coming to us at the Pistons at 19, 18 years old. We have wow. the youngest kid in the NBA and he's 19, just turned 19 a couple months ago. So I know, I recognize early on and talk to our front office and our head coach about the importance of us playing the role of prefrontal cortex. I literally say our job is to play the role of prefrontal cortex. So here's what that does. Here's what that prefrontal cortex does. These guys are going to be faced with so many decisions and they can't really see the long term. Not yet. They don't have the yes. ability. But right. what they can do is hear us if they trust us. Because the other thing that come, comes with playing the role of prefrontal cortex is I must trust you. Mm. Because if I don't trust you, I'm not listening to you. But if I hear you say, hey, slow down, because that's what there's some really cool research in the world of bias that helped me with this prefrontal cortex understanding that if you flashed in front of people's face pictures of other human beings, oftentimes my white peers, if they saw white faces, there was no reaction in the brain. But if they saw black or brown faces for milliseconds on the flash, the amygdala would fire. But if they slowed it down and saw that picture, amygdala would fire immediately then it would subside, and if you left that picture for half a second, the prefrontal cortex would engage. Why? Because it was saying, ah, political correctness. I'm not supposed to be afraid of those people. Yeah. So right. that says, if we can slow things down, mm. the prefrontal cortex can start to play a role. But if you leave kids with the decision-making in front of them, and it's got to be on the fly, eh, they'll make poor decisions. Most parents have heard have said this phrase, son, daughter, what were you thinking? And a kid says, I don't know. They weren't thinking. They were emoting. They weren't thinking. Right. They didn't, their prefrontal cortex wasn't doing that. They were emoting. They were using the amygdala. They were making decisions in that frame. So just understanding that I think can be helpful. That really speaks to another quote that I pulled from the chapter about what untruths are you telling yourself about your current existence? And you say something that was really profound to me. True freedom, the ability to make your own choices, is a heavy responsibility. That true freedom in anyone's life is extremely burdensome. And yeah. we may not see it that way until we mm. get shackled with that true freedom and say, oh, boy, this is heavy. And what we also have to understand as parents or support mechanisms for these younger people is that we have to allow them to screw it up. We can't helicopter in and keep them from failure. This is the failure. Struggle is the learn. That's where the learn usually is situated. Yep. It's almost like Easter egg hunting. That Easter egg is the struggle. That's what the journey is. We need mm. that to help us understand and learn. That contrast is where the understanding and the learning preside. Having that understanding as we move is really important. For instance, my son is 22, and he probably is more like a 19-year-old than 20, even 22. So he may not even quite be to that age of 22. And I think that happens oftentimes with males. 
as opposed to young women. He bought a car, decent car, first car that he had bought, but he wanted something different. So he began to talk to me about, I want to get this truck. I said, son, that's not a great deal. I'm just, yeah, I want it. And I had to say, all right, my wife and I talked and she wanted, no, let's not let him do this. A bad choice. I said, you know what, babe? Hey, let's let him get the truck and let's just let him learn from it. He got it. It fell apart. It was a train wreck. And he then came back and said, yeah, I didn't think that through. And you guys told me not to get it. And I knew, but I wanted to really make a choice. And I said, and we allowed, we wanted, that's why we allowed that to occur. That's your call. You're 22, bud. I'm not going to jump up and tell you can't do. No, that's how you learn. So when it's time, next time you'll think through. And guess what? You'll all, every time you buy a vehicle for the rest of your life, you'll think back to that moment. If you buy 30 more vehicles between the, across the lifespan, you'll always think back to that moment. You'll always say, all right, so let me be thoughtful. When your child wants to buy a vehicle, you'll think back to that moment. You learn from it. I think that's the save there, Doc, is that as parents, we can't just say, I'm going to be your prefrontal cortex and save you from everything. That's not right. the move. That's an, so we want to be curious with our children and even allow them when we know that's probably not going to work, let them have that moment. They're going to learn from it. Let them have it. You had yours. I had mine. Let them learn. Let them move through it. And how to help all of us, because you just had a powerful reframe that our struggles can be the Easter egg. So when we are in the midst of something, we're in that valley. We are trudging through. We're not sure we're going to make it. We are miserable. We are shaking our fists at the sky. That's actually a gift. Yes. <laughs> and, but how, like when you're in the middle of it, you were like, no, it's not. It is yes. definitely not a gift. I hate this season of my life. This is yes. miserable. This is brutal. But I feel like that powerful reframe that you just invited us to consider is one that 22, 42, 102, we can always learn from that. No, that's right. And I think it, it goes to an adage that Nelson Mandela said that I live by. And he said, in life, we never lose. We either win or we learn, right? Mm -hmm. So that, I think, I, and I live by that, that there's no losing. There is no just, oh my God, it's negative. And no, we either win or we learn. So the discomfort that we feel, it should not be discomfort or pain for the sake of pain or discomfort, because if it is, we'll lean away from it. But if we right. can reframe and think of pain or discomfort as an indicator of growth, then we'll lean into it or at least not lean away from it. So if we have those moments that feel uncomfortable, instead of just saying, I hate this, say, OK, what is the what am I about to birth here? Mm. Because as I birth something, there's going to be labor pains associated with it, but it will produce beauty. Right. So yeah. what is it that I'm about to birth here? What is it that's in front of me that I should be paying attention to and not just paying attention to the pain, but what it may be producing on the back end? And it'll allow for me to deal with that pain a little more readily. And I think that's an important thing for us to get a hold of. Yeah. And it's so germane to what this podcast is about and what your work is about is that as mental health professionals, we are trained with techniques and strategies and solutions to alleviate pain. And here we're saying, but sometimes it's good. 
We need it. We grow from it. You talked about anxiety in the book as well. And of course, that proportions at this point in our culture. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Certainly cultural realities. The social media we spoke to earlier, that's not that's been shown in research by Dr. Jean Twenge that it's really detrimental to young girls in particular with their anxiety. Certainly the fact that we're never still, certainly I think our diet is really messed up. We don't get enough sunlight. Many factors place, but you give some real tangible tips about anxiety. And I love the one you talk about personifying it and Mm -hmm. helping that be a way to move through, negotiate, navigate anxiety. Can you speak to that a bit? Yeah, I think this idea, and I use personification a lot because what I'm in in therapy, anytime I'm engaging people that have any types of struggle. So in terms of anxiety, personifying the anxiety, almost turning the anxiety into another individual allows you to understand your relationship with that anxiety. So if you have anxiety or depression in your world, then that means you're in relationship with that anxiety, Mm. with that depression. So then you should be curious about, so what is my relationship with this anxiety? When does it come to visit? So if you're in relationship with somebody or so it come it may come to visit, you may go to visit it. You may call on the anxiety to come yes. into your world. Because anxiety is not in and of itself a bad thing. If I have anxiety because I have a test two days from now, it may push me to study. That's not always bad. The anxiety that we seek to avoid is that paralyzing anxiety that we say, oh my God, I don't have an idea and I can't control what's gonna happen in the future. It's rooted in fear. Right. And fear is usually always rooted in something that is yet to occur. It hasn't occurred. So it's to some degree a facade. What happened 10 minutes ago is a facade now. It's only to be made in my mind, only to be brought up in my memory. But it's not real anymore. What's going to happen 10 minutes from now is not real. It's only to be made up in my mind. So what the only reality we have is this current moment. This is all we really have. What we have is the moment that we reside in. So slowing down, understanding that this is where we are and personifying that to say, so sometimes anxiety comes to visit. And guess what? Sometimes I'm not going to answer the door. I'm not. (laughs) Not right now. Not right now. I'm not going to answer the door. Tomorrow, I'll probably answer the door. But right now, I'm not going to. I choose not to answer the door that anxiety is knocking on. I say it all the time, Doc. Because your phone rings doesn't mean you must answer it. It just is telling you that someone on the other end would like to talk to you. That doesn't mean I have to answer it. It's just notifying me. All right. I see that it would like to come and talk to me, but I'm not in the mood to talk. So I'm not going to answer it. If we personify things like anxiety, we start to gain a little control. And that's all we want to do is gain a little foothold, a little control, little by little, bite-sized. And the more we get a hold, we start to realize, damn, I, maybe I do have a little more control than I thought. Yeah, mm. there we go. Let's build on that. And that's the work that I love doing. That's why I feel like when I'm working, Doc, and I'm sure you, you experience this, I never feel like I'm working. And that <laughs> never feels like a, wor- a moment of work because I feel like I'm charged with having these discussions, pointing things out that I've learned that may help someone else. It always feels like a natural setting. And I'm always looking for new information that I can share with others that may help them. 
and you're thriving in your meaning and your purpose and how God wired you to be mm. so that you could share mm. this light with others. I want to underscore this understanding of the relationship between anxiety because I think that personifying, that's something, I think that's novel. Most people aren't thinking of, first of all, I don't like that they own it, my anxiety. I don't yeah. own things that I don't want in my life. So I don't, I think words are powerful. So I, I'm careful. But so anxiety, like you said, it can come to visit. You don't have to open the door and welcome it in. And I think also, what's it serving? So you mentioned that the relationship with anxiety, sometimes it's serving a purpose. It's it's giving me this relationship to stew about, mm -hmm. to be worked up about. And maybe, so for example, social anxiety, it can keep me from cultivating and then maintaining deep, intimate relationships, which we know are so critical and crucial to our well-being. And yet that anxiety is keeping me from that. Yep. And so I'm convincing myself, reinforcing to myself, anxiety is more powerful than me. It's more powerful than my need for connection. And that's a lie. It's one of those untruths wow. you spoke about yeah. in the book. But it's, I think the personification is such a powerful framework through which to understand. And when we talk about this personification, what I've had is when I use the metaphor, the analogy of anxiety coming to visit and that you get a choice and not answering the door. I've had clients say, yeah, but what if it, sometimes it just kicks the door in and it's yeah. now it's in my house. I said, so in those moments, what would you do if an intruder came into your home? You would call for help. You would call your help in. Mm. You would call whoever's in the home. Hey, come down, let's help. Let's push this person back out. Or you would get on a phone, you would find someone, hey, let's call in the reinforcements because it's now kicked it in. It's not, I didn't want it in, but now it's here. All right, so now I'm struggling to get it out of here on my own. So I'm going to call in all the reinforcements that I, that is an important thing. And we still have kept it in the realm of personification. And it's still in relationship. Now it's an unwanted intruder that right. has come into my home. And I don't want that. Okay, let's call some help then, because we're going to get it out of here. Because if you call me, I'm going to help you get it out. Well, let's go. Hey, it's not gonna, we're not going to stand for that. And you're going to get out of here. And that doesn't mean you won't be back, but you're going to get out right now. And we're going to do this together. And let's push it out. And I think in those moments, Doc, people gain power. When they get that help and they see, hey, that helped me, all of a sudden they start to say, I can probably do something about this. Mm -hmm. I probably can. I didn't think before that I could. Now I'm coming to understand, I think I can do something about this. And that may be the first time they had that thought. And again, that thought, because going back to how powerful that is, that belief in yourself, wait, actually, I am empowered in this moment. And yeah, anxiety may be something that I struggle with, but I don't have to lose it. I don't have to lose that battle. And I can lean to your point. I can reach out for help. There are other folks out here who understand this. And I can lean on them during these times and derive strength from them, which yeah. then I internalize. And then I give, as you've done throughout your entire story, all the strength that you've derived from others, you now disseminate to those, to your players, to folks who read this book, to your clients, anyone in your community. Our satisfaction and joy in life is directly related to our satisfaction and joy in our relationships. Elliot and I are here to help. We'd love to design a workshop, seminar, or weekend retreat for your organization. We'll bring the psych research, of course, along with over 60 years of combined experience in psychotherapy. We'll share science-based 
therapeutic techniques within the context of a Christian worldview. We can level up in our relationships. Contact our producer, Tim May, at tim at loveandlifemedia.com to book us. The last quote that I want to share, you say, I think that's the best hope any of us have of making an impact on the world by influencing our immediate networks. And of course, the book will provide you with a broader network than the Pistons and then your clients. But I just think that's a really beautiful way to summarize what you offer and what you invite readers to engage in in your work. Yeah, Doc, I think that's one of the struggles that we have. We get frustrated when we attack to try to change the world. And we all want the world to change in the, for the better. So mm-hmm. sometimes we take a big, huge stance and try to, hey, let's move the world. And then oftentimes we fail and we get disappointed and we get frustrated that others aren't moving in the way that we think they should. So I think that's a mistake is to try to take on that big, huge space I think it is the African proverb of how to eat an elephant. And the answer is one bite at a time. (laughs) So the bite I submit that we should be taking is from our social networks. Who are the people that I'm closest to? Begin there. Begin to understand and share with them and talk through things with them. I've heard, and I didn't anticipate this, but heard a lot of people starting to use the book in social settings at dinner parties to engage with their social networks to say, so what is your genius? Let's talk about this as a group so we can all know what each other's genius is. That's a thing of beauty. Because in that now, in that small social network, I didn't know that Dr. K saw her genius as fill in the blank. I didn't know that. Now, when she leaves my party that night, I know something about her that I didn't know before. So now that makes us more rich. Now I get to call on Dr. K when I need something that I didn't even know that she loved doing and that she saw as a genius. So now can we can build on those moments of understanding within our networks. And if we all begin to engage in our networks, guess what, Doc? I'm part of multiple networks. So if I go to this network over here with my friends with my wife and that group, I'm going to help to impact that space. But then I'm going to go to be part of the network that is with the NBA and the Pistons. And I'm going to impact that network. And then I'm going to do, as an author, I'm going to impact another network. So if we all start to move in that way, I think that we can change things in a broader scope. But the focus is in a smaller, tighter knit space. And I, I just think that's a helpful reframe, as you said earlier, a helpful reframe that won't help us get as discouraged. I don't know if this is true, but I heard once that someone came to Mother Teresa when she was in India and doing all this mission work and caring for the folks who were impoverished and that someone came and wanted to work with her. And she said, if you want to change the world, go home and love your family. Yes. That's I it. don't know if that's true, but if it's true, that's profound. And it completely mirrors what you're saying here. That's exactly it. So why am I seeking to go halfway across the world to be of support to families. And my own family would say, yeah, he's not really been here for us, though. Right. Yeah. So then what are we doing? Then I hate to say it in this way, but I see it this way. Sometimes I want to post these pictures on social media about me traveling across the world to help this group over here. Yeah, that's cool. But my first question is, so what's your neighborhood look like? How are things in your community? How close are you to the people a block or two away that are in your same space? 
I don't even know them. Yeah, you don't know them, but you're going to help halfway across the world. So that's not a bad thing, but we, shouldn't we be supportive and helpful and understanding of our own backyards first? I think that's one of the struggles that we have, that we don't do that work. Let's help ourselves and be supportive. And that doesn't mean if there's something that happens in Turkey that we don't support. That doesn't mean that, that we should be supportive, but we should also make sure that we're tuned in to our own backyard, that we're understanding the struggle and the plight of people in our own spaces. I think that that's a both-and approach. You can do both. Dr. Yeager, I want to thank you so much for your time today and for putting this work into the world. I do believe it's a really impactful and profound tool for anyone who wants to ask those questions of themselves. And then as we wrapped up with, through that understanding of myself, I can be more positive influence on those around me, starting with my small circle and then whatever network come across my path. Where can people find more about you, the book, all the work you're doing? Yeah, you can really, the book is at all the major book outlets from Amazon to Barnes and Noble. You can really find it anywhere. How am I doing? 40 conversations to have with yourself. If you Google that, you'll find it everywhere. At small booksellers across the country and the world, it's everywhere. And then to find me, you can at any social media from Instagram to Facebook to Twitter is Dr. Corey Yeager. Spell out Dr. C-O-R-E-Y-E-A-G-E-R. You can find me in all those spaces. So I think that's the best way to, to find me. Oh, excellent. Thanks again so much for your time. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks, Doc. I appreciate it. Thank you, as always, for joining us today. We really appreciate it. As you know, Elliot is now the official co-host of Love and Life. If you're interested in working with him or working with me, head over to loveandlifemedia.com where you'll find Elliot's Work With Me tab and you'll also receive a free empowered dating playbook for signing up to our newsletter. We are here to help us all align our mind, body, and spirit for empowered relationships. And until next time, make it a great week. Love and Life is produced by Tim May and hosts and executive producer, Dr. Karen Anderson-Abril.